Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. kind of cliche at this point of the year to point out how close we are to Christmas, how much it feels like the year has flown by, but, you know, also, here we are. It's the last Sunday uh, before Advent. Thanksgiving is just a couple of days away. Um, In fact, my wife decided yesterday that we're going to go ahead and put all the Christmas decorations up before Thanksgiving, and I was not going to object. The other day, as Angie was coming in, she had bought a couple things at the grocery store for the kids for Christmas. And so we shooed the kids into their rooms so that we could shield their eyes from the presents that were about to come in. This is because we, as Woodalls, have a long tradition of present peeking. And by we, I definitely mean me. Because when I was about 11 years old, uh, my parents left me around Christmas Uh, to go run some errands. And as I sat there and I looked at all of the gifts underneath the nativity set that we had, uh, why we had a nativity set and not a Christmas tree in the Woodall household is a story for another day. But I looked at those gifts and I decided I needed to know right then and there what I was getting for Christmas. And so I hatched a plan and executed this plan to a T. I got an X-Acto knife and I went through the tape on every single one of the packages and sliced it ever so carefully, opened the package up to where I could see what exactly was in there, and then folded the wrapping paper back up, placing a piece of tape directly over the old piece of tape of the same size, and no one was ever the wiser. On Christmas morning, I gave what I thought to be an Academy Award-winning performance as I pretended to be shocked and awed that I got Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Like many things in my life, uh, my conscience got the best of me, and after there were no real consequences to the action, a few days later, I confessed this to my parents. Thus ended the Woodall family tradition of wrapping gifts. After I was 11 years old, we had no tree, and we had no wrapping papers on our gifts. Um, It wasn't that bad. That sounds like a terrible childhood. It was actually pretty great. Don't get it twisted, okay? That's not a shot. That's, it wasn't bad. There was no ceremony to it whatsoever. But what I, why I tell that story is, it's amazing how we as humans have the capacity to turn blessings into an opportunity to do the wrong thing. Those gifts were a blessing to me. They were going to be a surprise, and yet I used them as an opportunity uh, to sneak a peek and work on my deception skills. Think about how often this happens in other times in our lives. You get your first car. What an amazing blessing getting a license and a car is, and what an opportunity for you to do all sorts of things, to go down avenues of wrongdoing. Think about the blessing that comes with a new job or a raise, more money in your pocket at the end of each month. That can be a chance to do amazing good, or it can be a chance for greed and avarice to grab our hearts. You get a new position of authority, a promotion, or possibly a new job, and you can use that to elevate your own name instead of serving others. We have a staggering 
capacity to turn blessings into opportunities for wrongdoing. And this isn't any new story. This isn't something that just started happening to us. This isn't a result of the internet somehow. Rather, this is embedded in us as humans since the fall. Think about Adam and Eve. They turned that blessing of the garden into an opportunity for wrongdoing. Abraham and all his blessings. And now we come to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, and we come to the story of the golden calf. When we listen to temptation, our sin deceives us in a thousand ways. It deceives us about what is true. We're going to see that in the people of Israel. It lies to us about the consequences our actions create. And it causes us to shift blame onto other people instead of owning up and taking responsibility for our sin. As we read through the story of the golden calf, what I want you to see is that it's not only true because it happened, but as we read it, we're going to see that it's true because it happens in your life and mine. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand with me as I read God's word to us. I'm going to be reading Exodus chapter 32. City Church, hear the word of God. When the people of Israel saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people who you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the, the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, 
And Israel, your servants, to whom you swore your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the shouting for victory or the sound of a cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel to drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that if you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Then Moses said to the people, uh, then Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained into the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that you might bestow a ble- so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made a calf, uh, the one that Aaron had made. City Church, this is the word of God written uh, over 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So as we close our, our series on the book of Exodus, we come to a rather sad chapter, also a funny chapter. I'm glad that many of you um, got the, the irony that was sort of laced into there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But up to this point in the 
story of Exodus, the people of God have been childish, but not full out evil. They've been kind of complainers, but they haven't been full out walking away from God. But as we read this story, the sad reality of what we see and what we have just read is how quickly they fell away. Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days, which means that there had only been 90 days since the Red Sea crossing when we come to this chapter. That's less time than it's been since the start of the school year. In the time that it takes between the school year and Thanksgiving was the time that it took the people of Israel to decide, nah, we're good. We're going to find some other gods. You probably have creamer in your fridge uh, for your coffee that is older than 90 days. It's because creamer is awful and you shouldn't put it in your coffee. So it sticks around for a long time. No, no, but these people had experienced one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world. And not even three calendar months later, they decide we need to find some new gods. They can't be left alone for five and a half weeks, just like when I was an 11-year-old. I shouldn't have been left alone for about 45 minutes. They wanted a god who would go before them. That's how their sin worked. That's what they asked Moses for. We need a God who is going to go before us. But but here's how sin makes us stupid. How did the people of Israel get to Sinai? God had gone before them. God had led them there. God had brought them across the land, dry land in the Red Sea. One of the things that sin does to us is it causes us to discount and forget the things that God has already done for us. So they decide, let's go ahead and break the first commandment. Let's make for ourselves a new God. And that's exactly what they ask Aaron to do. And Aaron says, I see your first commandment. I'll raise you the first and second commandment and says, let's do this. Let's worship an idol that I'm going to make. And so he says, everybody, get your gold, bring it to me. I'm going to melt it down. And then if you look at verse four, it describes the carefulness that Aaron uses in crafting this. He gathered the gold together. He got a tool for working the gold. And then he created this golden cow. Keep that in the back of your mind, because I think you know, you heard where this is going, but Aaron is incredibly deliberate. But but where did the people get this gold? Where did the gold that they're wearing in their ears and around their necks come from? Oh yeah, that's right. God had the Egyptians give it to them when they were leaving the land of Israel. They took the blessings and spoils that God had given them, that Yahweh, the one true God, had given to the people of Israel as, as reparations for the years of slavery. They took that blessing and turned it into a new God so they didn't have to worship the true God. You know what? Aaron decides while we're at it, you know, breaking the first and second commandment isn't enough. Here's what we'll do. We'll go ahead and add number three, just for good measure, just for good measure. Because what does he say? He says, tomorrow, after he builds an altar in front of this, tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. 
He begins to call this golden cow by God's personal name that had been revealed to the people of Israel. If that's not taking God's name in vain, if that's not using God's name unseriously, I'm not sure what is. And so the people woke up the next morning, they made sacrifices, they sat down to eat and drink, which is exactly what the elders did a few weeks ago when we read that they ate and drank in the presence of God. But instead of rising up to worship, like they did a few chapters ago, it says they rose up to play. Now, rising up to play is the translators of the English Standard Version being a little coy about what happened here. They're kind of trying to make the Bible a little bit more accessible to some of our children because what the people of Israel did was they rose up for mass cultic sensuality. Instead of worship, they had their fill of pleasure. They created a gross parody of worship, which is what idolatry always is. And so we read this story, and it's sad and frankly embarrassing for the people of God. And it would be easy for us to hear all that the people of Israel did and sort of begin to wag our heads. Uh, Foolish people, they don't get it. I'm glad I've never worshipped a golden cow. I'm glad I have no sacred cow in my life that I would protect above everything else. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those people. But beloved, here's the thing. I think you know what I'm about to say. We are more like the people of Israel in this moment than we want to admit. We don't have metal idols anymore, but so many of us have mental idols. We have blessings that we have elevated into the place of God in our lives. I want to just point out two ways uh, that we do this, that we as Christians in the church are guilty of this same sort of idolatry. It's the ways that we center politics and the ways that we center self. I don't know if you heard, but there was an election a couple weeks ago. You may have seen news about it in a paper or online or from social media. And from what I can gather, some people won, some other people lost, some votes are not counted yet, some elections are going uh, to runoffs. There's a lot of stuff going on. But in our age of hardened partisanship, there are tragedies all around. The story out of Ohio Um, of a man who shot his neighbor, and the police report says he shot his neighbor because he thought he was a Democrat. You look at the language that was involved. I, I saw a billboard that is still up on my way to church this morning, and the language that was used uh, by some was, democracy is on the ballot. I don't have to point out all of the different illustrations of the ways that this is happening around us. I think you know what I'm talking about. But the level of discourse and the level of intensity from all corners of our nation, from all corners of our culture, shows us how much we have elevated politics into being a savior. Whether we vest uh, this hope in a particular party or a particular person, we have a huge problem. We use God to justify our political beliefs, whether they're left, right, or center. Now listen, 
I'm not saying politics are unimportant, but what I am saying is that politics are not ultimate. I looked it up as I wrote this sermon, um, and the results that I found in uh, the Bible was that Jesus is still the sovereign Lord and King of this nation and every other nation. It wasn't even on the ballot. It's just a fact of life. But, but here's the temptation we as Christians have. We have a temptation to raise politics to a level of idolatry. The old Thanksgiving rule is at the Thanksgiving dinner table, you don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion. Let me be honest. For some of you, you're more than happy to talk about politics at Thanksgiving because it has become your religion. The golden calf didn't just happen. It happens. It happens every time we elevate even good things to being ultimate things. The other way we fall for this lie of idolatry um, is in the way that we elevate ourselves. Uh, This last week, Dr. Tara Isabella Burton wrote an article for the New York Times. And what she wanted to show was how our language and the centering of our language on ourselves has changed the way uh, that our society works, the way that we think of others. She quotes a professor of sociology from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and I want to read this quote. I'm going to read it twice, you know, because that's what you do with quotes so that they really sink in. Here's what the quote says. We have withdrawn to a highly subjectivist form of individualism. This means that our emotions have become the moral ground for our actions. We have withdrawn to a highly subjectivist form of individualism. This means that our emotions have become the moral ground for our actions. And this quote um, stuck with me. This quote jumped out at me because of our subjective feelings are the moral grounds for our actions. That means that we have created an idol. That means that we're not submitting to an objective external reality and authority. That means we've internalized that. Because that's what idols do. Idols give us moral grounds to act a certain way. The people of Israel felt fine about their religious orgy because they had moral grounds given to them by this golden calf. This is now our God. This God has no rules against it. This God is the one that we are now going to act in accordance with. Beloved, you and I have centered our internal thoughts and feelings to the point that they've become our moral ground. I say this as somebody who struggles with this as well. This is the water that we swim in the air that we breathe. And yet, it is idolatry, just like the golden calf. We can't wag our heads. We can't shake our heads because of the ways that we have done the same thing. The golden calf is not just true because it happened. It's true because it happens. And the story shifts rather quickly. We get sort of a a camera whip up to the top of the mountain where God tells Moses what Israel is doing. And then God makes a strange request to Moses. He says, leave me alone so that my anger can boil over and I can wipe them out and start over with you. Which, 
that had to be an intriguing offer for Moses. Moses is basically offered to become the new Abraham, the new father of the faith. But Moses doesn't even hesitate. Moses doesn't stutter, and he does something really shocking. He seems to start negotiating with God. Can you imagine God telling you, go away, I'm going to recreate the family out of, of faith, out of your people, and Moses wants to negotiate for that not to happen. Moses gives three reasons to God. He says, first of all, God, you promised to have them as your people. Did you catch the way that God spoke of the people of Israel initially? Moses, this is your people. You brought them out of the land of Egypt. And Moses turns around to God and says, no, I didn't. And no, they're not. God, these are your people who you have brought out of the land of Egypt, who you have repeatedly told that you are the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. He reminds them of their place as God's people. And then he reminds them, reminds God, what will this do to your reputation in the world? What will people think about you as the God of Israel if you rescued them from Egypt in a miraculous way, brought them to Mount Sinai, and then slaughtered them all and just kept the one guy, Moses? God, that's not a good look. And then Moses, like a, like a good lawyer, saves his best argument for last. He says to God, God, you have sworn by your very character to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that you would be the God to this people. And then, shockingly, as Moses beginning to negotiate, the Lord relents of wiping out the nation of Israel. This morning, we are not going to cover what it means for God to relent and how all of that works, maybe some other time, but God does. God changes his mind and says, okay, I'm not going to wipe them out, Moses. And so Moses begins to go down the mountain. And on the way, he picks up Joshua, who is there halfway up the mountain. And Joshua's a little bit confused. It, I hear a lot of shouting and screaming from the people of Israel down at the camp. It sounds like it's almost like a battle, but they're not shouting in victory. They're not shouting in defeat. It's almost like it's something else. And you can, almost, you can almost hear Moses rolling his eyes going, yeah, Joshua, it's something else, all right. Yeah, well, <laughs> you'll see when we get there. And then they get down, and then two very significant and symbolic things happen. The first thing is when Moses see how, sees how the people of Israel have gone out, have broken out into all that they're doing, he throws down the Ten Commandments. And if you noticed uh, that the writer of this chapter is very clear that these weren't just some nice stone tablets. These were carved and etched by the very finger of God. And Moses throws them down. It would be wrong for us to read this and think that Moses was shocked and angry. Moses knows walking in to the bottom of the mountain, exactly what he is going to find there. Moses is not shocked or surprised. God has already told him. So why does he throw down these commandments? Because the people of Israel have broken the covenant and broken the law. And he symbolically shows them that by taking what I can only imagine were two beautiful tablets 
and breaking them to pieces on the ground because the law and the covenant had been broken. And then he gives them another object lesson when he takes the cow and he grounds it, grinds it into powder and then puts it in the people's drinking water, forcing them to drink it down. This is a symbol that he's saying, this idol is nothing. This idol doesn't save. This idol can't fulfill. Watch, it's going to pass through you and come out what it truly is. Dung. And he gives them these two object lessons of breaking the tablets and then making the people eat the gold and drink the gold of the idol. But the sort of fallout of the golden cow incident isn't over. Because first, Moses goes to Aaron and asks Aaron what happens. That's the part of the story that you laughed at because Aaron reverts very suddenly to being apparently a five-year-old. What did he say? Moses, don't blame me. I just took the gold and put it in the fire and then out popped a cow. I'm as shocked as you are, Moses, if I'm being honest here. Everyone around here is surprised at this outcome. He, He sounds ridiculous. It's funny because in many ways, Exodus 32 is God retelling the story of the fall in Genesis 3. And when God comes and asks Adam, where are you? What have you done? What does Adam say? Well, Eve gave me this fruit and I ate it. And what does Eve say? Well, the talking serpent, what he did was... It's that same sort of blame shifting. One of the ways that our idolatry and our sin affects us is when we're caught in it, we make up all sorts of excuses and make sure that everybody knows that it's someone else's fault besides my own. It causes us to try to shift the blame onto others and we don't own up to things. And beloved, when we do this, we might think that we're clever. We might think that we're sly and that we have covered our sin, but more often than not, we look like Aaron saying, oh, out popped a cow. That's how foolish we often look. And that sort of foolishness is contrasted with the seriousness of what comes next, which is Moses calling out to the camp, who is on the Lord's side, gather to me. And only the Levites gather to him. He hands them swords and says, I want you to go up and down, back and forth, gate to gate. And anybody who is still going wild, I want you to slaughter. I want you to take these swords and kill them. That that seems brutal. That seems like maybe a lot. But death is always the consequence of sin. Sin always leads to death. James tells us that in James chapter 1. See, temptation presents sin as harmless and attractive, just a little treat for me. But in reality, what sin looks like is 3,000 rotting corpses in the midst of the camp. Death is sin made visible. We can't coddle our sin. Throughout the Bible, it's described as as rot, as a viper, as a lion. It is constantly trying to blind us to the fact that sin kills our souls. So in the midst of all of this death and destruction, 
in the midst of the camp strewn with the bodies of their brothers and sisters, Moses goes back up the mountain. But Moses goes back up the mountain with a plan. He's got an idea. Maybe somehow I can atone for the people's sins. Somehow, maybe I'm going to be able to make this right. And so he gets to the top of the mountain. He gets back to where God is and he pitches God on an idea. Take me instead. Blot out my name and let the people go free. Just like in Eden, we saw God sacrifice an animal to cover the guilt and shame of Adam and Eve. Here, we see Moses making an offer to be that same sort of sacrifice. But God says, not right now. There will be a day where I visit you. There is going to come a day where there will be blotting out, but we're going to wait on that. I'm going to give a stay of execution And then this, in Moses, walking up, willing to be the mediator, willing to have himself blotted out, cast out, torn apart for the people of Israel, we see a picture of the day when Jesus would climb, not Mount Sinai, but a hill called Golgotha, where Jesus would offer himself to be blotted out for us, where he would be broken apart like the tablets, where he is torn and sacrificed so that our sins would be blotted out of God's record. Jesus did what Moses offered. He gave himself up that we might live. He experienced the rot of death. He was bitten by the viper of sin's deadly consequences. He was thrown not to lions, but to soldiers. And he did this so that we could be reconciled to God, so that our sins would be forgotten, so that we might be passed over no matter what form or how deep our idolatry is, so that we might be found in the righteousness of Christ. Beloved, stand inside the awe of that sort of love. Behold the love that God has lavished on us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God experiencing that sort of self-sacrificial love on our behalf is how we learn to love our neighbors, how we learn to love our families. This sort of love transforms us to be able to love in the same way, to be able to stand between, understanding the depths of our idolatry, whether yours is two of the ones that I mentioned or it takes another form, understanding the lengths that Jesus goes to forgive us of that sin. Understanding that is the seed that begins to grow the fruit of the Spirit. May we experience that love through finding ourselves in this story and rehearsing the gospel again to ourselves through this table. Let's pray.